Hey, everyone. This is your co-host, Maggie McGrath. Before you hear this week's Super Tuesday episode, please note that our conversation with Dan Alexander about today and all the candidates was recorded before the South Carolina primary and before Tom Steyer, Pete Buttigieg, and Amy Klobuchar announced that they were dropping out of the race. You will hear us talk about all three candidates, their strategy, their end games, their money. Um, and unfortunately, we can't go back in time and warn ourselves about these new developments. But we're still going to share this episode with you because we think you're going to find most of the information really interesting, really informative. Dan is a longtime Forbes editor and knows all the inside tricks to learning all about candidate wealth. So dig in and have fun. Hello, and welcome to Listed, a Forbes podcast about people, money, and power. I'm your co-host, Maggie McGrath. And I'm your other co-host, Abe Brown. And today, we have a super special Super Tuesday episode all about the 2020 presidential candidates and their wealth. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Five, six, seven, eight. Before I let Abe have the mic, I want to make my own little disclaimer. It's a huge win for him that we're talking about politics today. I find politics stressful as a result. This is going to be the last episode you hear for a few weeks. We're taking a little bit of a break. I might find a beach. Abe's giving me the evil eye. Okay, Abe, take it away. Maggie, we have some names to talk about today. A lot of them start with B's, actually. Bloomberg, Biden. Bernie. Bernie. Buttigieg. I'm I'm going two names for Mayor Pete because I don't I don't like to mess up in public. Speaking of public pronouncements, what I want to know is if you were running for president, what would you put in your stump speech? What anecdote about the life of Abe Brown would you tell to win voter hearts and minds? Maggie, you asked me this over the weekend and I came and gave it some thought. And actually, I did something more than an anecdote. I wrote a stump speech. No, you didn't. I did. Of Are you ready? You did. I'm not. Are you ready? Okay, so stump speeches are participatory events. I need to hear from the crowd. I need to hear from you. Go right. for it. Just go. Hello, New Jersey. It's great to be here today. It's a wonderful day in the Garden State. Uh, I want to make a couple thank yous to get started. I want to thank my co-host, Maggie McGrath. I want to thank our editor, Randall Lane. And I want to thank Mrs. Hurley for the ability to say R's, S's, and L's. Without all of you, I wouldn't be here today. But I am here today, and I'm here to ask you to think about some questions that confront this great country. Like, why is pie always served for dessert and never for breakfast? Hmm. Why does the NBA go for nine months? Why do we let dogs on planes? Why are they still making DVDs? Why is Martin <laughs> Scorsese still making movies? <laughs> there are other questions worth asking, too. Like, why do all TV shows now have eight to ten episodes and a fantasy land setting? Huh. My fellow writers, ask not what dragons can do for you. Ask what an audience actually wants on a Sunday night. Ask not what zombies will do for you, but what a fully realized three-season plot with a strong female lead will do for America. <laughs> why is all chili either too mild or too hot? Too long have we been divided. We must find middle ground. Let us be the generation that rewrites the recipe with just enough jalapenos. Let us set higher standards for our kitchen, where lean beef, or better yet, turkey, is how we succeed. 
Wait, hold on, hold on. Hold I got one more. Okay, do you want to interject? I got. I, it's almost done. Do you want to interject now or later? I have so many thoughts, but it's the turkey. But keep going, keep going. Why do we play Monopoly with small children? <laughs> we can't teach our youngest, most vital minds to create rules as they go along. To always be the same piece on the game board of life. To always expect money on free parking. We must build an economy that works for everyone, not just those on Park Place. These are the questions that America must answer today. I recognize the audacity of all this coming from a millennial podcast host. It's more than a little bold at age 30 to seek these high-minded changes. But I believe the moment we live in compels us to act. Maggie, are you with me? Yes. (laughs) I have so many questions, but can we go back to, I use lean turkey in my chili. Is that bad? No, I'm advocating for that. But no, but do people disagree with us? Most people use like 80 80 or 85% um, ground beef. Fat? 80% fat or 80% lean? 80% lean, 20% or 85%. Okay. I do that sometimes, but like lean turkey is the way to go. I agree. That's what I'm advvocating for. No, I'm not disagreeing. I guess I'm I'm questioning why you need to advocate for it because it makes so much sense to me. This is how most politicians probably feel on a daily basis when they meet their supporters. I mean, I support those policies, especially the strong female lead. Wait, what else? Why are we making DVDs anymore? I feel like... (laughs) I feel like we're about to stop making DVDs. Um, I that was impressive. I did not write a full stump speech. <laughs> but t- tell me what what do you want to see? What what change do you believe in? What do you have the audacity to hope for? I believe in a lot of change, but I didn't actually write a policy platform. I when prepping for this episode was thinking more in terms of what anecdotes would allow me to connect with voters, because I was thinking about how the current crop of candidates tries to connect with voters. If you've ever watched Elizabeth Warren give a speech, you've heard her talk about her Aunt B, who offered to come help her raise her kids at a moment when she couldn't figure out what else to do for childcare, uh, and she was about to quit her job as a law professor. And she really attributes her professional career to Aunt B. And that is an anecdote and a story that I think a lot of voters connect with. I think something that most of my friends and loved ones know about me is I graduated with a lot of student debt. My parents did a wonderful job preparing me for college, but the cost of higher ed in this country is in a word, insane. I think articulating something like that on the campaign trail is what would allow me to connect with voters because I think everyone has financial difficulty and, you know, maybe persuade them to support some of my other policies. Economic policies are always front and center in all all of the politicians' speeches. And then there is increasingly in this era a fascination and a preoccupation quite justifiably of their personal money. How much are the candidates worth? How do they talk about money? How do they position themselves in the Mm -hmm. eyes of voters? And that is what we're going to hear about today from our guest, Dan Alexander. Dan is a reporter and editor who's been looking closely at all the presidential candidates, their personal wealth, and their campaign financing. He's going to tell us all about how that money is influencing the race for the White House in 2020. He's a senior editor of Forbes, my longtime friend. It's Dan Alexander. Yes, thank you. You've had a busy, busy few months as the 2020 election has has ramped up. Yeah, busy couple of years. Busy couple of years, yeah. Uh, yeah. Take us back. You've been covering President Trump since basically the day of his election and his wealth. So after Trump won, uh, our editor, Randall Lane, 
um, decided, hey, we better take a serious look at covering this guy's business. After all, we've been looking at him for, you know, 30-some years. And so right around the time of the inauguration is when I started working on politics stuff and then uh, continued working on that. And now that the election's heating up, uh, it's kind of split between, you know, Trump coverage and then coverage of all these new characters that we get to cover. A lot of new characters. Let's go through them and let's start. We have, in Bernie speak, the millionaires and the billionaires. <laughs> I want to start with the billionaires uh-huh. um, because they have more money to play with than everyone else in the world. Well, I think we should start with Michael Bloomberg, who I think absolutely has the most money out of all of them. True. You know, there are billionaires and then there are like gazillionaires. And is that a technical Michael, term? It is very technical. Can you My, define it? How many zeros? Michael Bloomberg. Fits you can't the, define it, can you? The, I don't know. What is it? $62 billion and up. I don't know. <laughs> Just enough so that then Michael Bloomberg fits it. I mean, he is so much richer than these other guys, you know, than Trump and then Tom Steyer. You know, we estimate that Trump's cash pile is, you know, something like $150 million. So if he really wants to spend a lot of money on an election, he has to start selling assets. And how much has Bloomberg spent? At this point, according to the latest filings, he's spent $464 million, so almost up to a half a billion. That would be an enormous amount of money for anybody in the world, not so much for Michael Bloomberg. Wow. And how about Steyer, the other billionaire? Steyer's over a quarter of a billion at this point, which for him, you know, given that he's only worth $1.6 billion, according to our numbers, that's a real amount of money. That's more money than he earned in all of 2018, according to his tax returns. And what has all this spending gotten him? Well, so far, it's made him pretty popular in South Carolina, and it's also given him exposure across the country. You know, being on the debate stage is not nothing. So you've been looking at Donald Trump since he won the election Mm -hmm. in 2016. Now you have all these new characters. How do the billionaires in these new characters differ from the billionaire in the White House that you've been covering for the past few years? Well, Donald Trump is a -a one-of-a-kind billionaire. I mean, there really is no one on our list like Donald Trump. And if you just look at the numbers, though, uh, you know, the amount of money that Michael Bloomberg has is so much more significant than Donald Trump. And the way that the new entrants, uh, Bloomberg and Tom Steyer, are operating their campaigns is very different than the approach that Donald Trump took. So Trump really didn't spend all that much of his own money at the start. You know, he was getting on TV by saying crazy things, things that people were like, oh my gosh, can you believe that he said that? And some people loved it and some people hated it, but every news channel ran it. Now, Mike Bloomberg, he's gotten on TV because he spent a tremendous amount of money. He's on every commercial, <laughs> every time that you turn on the channel, whether it's whether you're watching sports or news or whatever. He even during the debate ran a commercial. So he had a little bit more airtime than the other candidates even then. Give us some perspective on the three men just quickly how much each is worth. So Tom Steyer is worth $1.6 billion, which is, you know, a tremendous amount of money, but it's not nearly as rich as Donald Trump, who's worth $3.1 billion, which is a whole heck of a lot of money, but it's practically nothing compared to Michael Bloomberg, who's worth $64 billion. I think I did the math the other day. Bloomberg has spent a couple hundred million and it's still less than 10 basis points of his net worth, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, people talk a lot about the gap between the rich and the poor, you know, there's a gap between the rich and the rich also. (laughs) And Michael Bloomberg's on one end of that gap. And if you're just taking billionaires, you know, Tom Steyer and and, uh, Donald Trump are on the other end. And, you know, Bloomberg's net worth has increased exponentially at a time that those guys' net worths have been relatively flat. 
And so it goes up. If you go up 15, 20% every single year, well, if you do that for 15, 20 years, guess what? You're going to be one of the top 10 richest people in the country. I'm really curious about Steyer because we've seen Bloomberg kind of come in late and make a big splash. It's maybe my Twitter feed is skewed, but it feels like there's just constant debate on almost every political opinion flavor you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Everyone has an opinion about Michael Bloomberg. Steyer has kind of been around. He's been in the debates. He doesn't seem like he's made much of an impact. It doesn't seem like he has much of a chance. So what is he trying to do? Why is he still in the race? Well, uh, not everyone runs for president to become president. You know, you can run for president to get a message out there. And if Steyer hangs around in the race and keeps being on the debate stage, you know, every month, he gets 15 minutes to talk about issues that are important to him. Whether Tom Steyer at the end of this year is worth $1.6 billion or $1.5 billion isn't going to matter to him. And maybe but auditions he might, for like a cabinet role or something like that, right? Yeah, that certainly could be. But it also just, I mean, think about the return on investment for these guys. If he thinks he's going to make some incremental impact on the conversation about global change, about global climate change, that might be enough for a guy who doesn't need the money. And then you have people like Andrew Yang, who, after he dropped out of the race, joined CNN as a political commentator. Right. He's still boosting his brand. And that's an interesting way to segue a failure. So Trump announced his reelection campaign on the day he took office. And we are now in 2020. You watched what he did in 2016. How does his 2020 election strategy and spending compare to four years ago? Well, in some way, the strategy is very sim similar, right? I mean, he's uh, saying controversial things. He's playing to his base, all of that. But from a financial standpoint, it couldn't be more different. He hasn't put a single penny of his own money yet into his campaign. None. This guy's worth $3.1 billion. He's funding it entirely with other people's support. You know, in 2016, by the end of it, he had put in $66 million of his own money, which is not Steyer or Bloomberg numbers, but it's a lot of money for a guy who's, you know, got a fairly illiquid fortune. Mm -hmm. Dan, can you give us a definition of what being illiquid is and give us some sense of how that differs for these three men? Well, liquidity is basically how much cash you got sitting around. So if you're illiquid, then relative to the amount of assets that you have, you don't have that much cash. Now, Tom Steyer doesn't have uh, the assets that Donald Trump has, but he's very liquid because he ran a hedge fund for years and finance billionaires almost by definition are very liquid. They, you know, they collect fees from everyone. So that's all cash coming in. So they have cash to spend. Uh, Michael Bloomberg has a lot of liquidity just because he has a lot of everything. He's got a huge <laughs> business that throws off a ton of money, and so he's got a bunch of liquidity. Donald Trump does not have as much liquidity because he's in an old line business, hard fixed real estate assets, and he uses his cash. You know, he spends it on the way that he lives. He spends it upgrading his properties. He spends it running for president. So he doesn't have nearly as much of his fortune tied up in cash as the other two do. I don't watch a lot of TV, but I've seen the ads that billionaire money can buy for some of these candidates. What are the things I can't see? How is being a billionaire candidate helpful in running a presidential campaign beyond the ads? So one of the biggest things is kind of the ground game. You know, most politicians are not that rich. And so they have to wait to get momentum, to get money, to get momentum, to get money. It's sort of this cycle. And they're always running first in Iowa and New Hampshire. And then they sort of worry about everything else dependent on how they do in those two states. But, you know, if you're Tom Steyer or if you're Michael Bloomberg, 
you don't have to just go for Iowa and New Hampshire. You can go for the whole country basically at once. This is one of the reasons, you know, why Tom Steyer has proven to be so popular in South Carolina. And it could explain also why Michael Bloomberg has such nationwide appeal, even though he's not polling so well in the very early states to vote. You know, the other thing is that you can pay people more money. So <laughs> there was actually a, a funny anecdotal story. Uh, one of my colleagues told me, Chase Withorn, and he said that uh, he had heard from somebody who was uh, in like a subway or something. And this guy came up to him and said, hey, uh, you know, I'm I'm working for the Steyer campaign. Would you like to, uh, you know, to support the campaign? And then he started asking him sort of about it a little bit more. And the volunteer said, well, really, I'm voting though for Bernie. And the volunteer pulled out a second clipboard. So he was getting paid more by the Steyer campaign. And so he was working for him, but then he liked Bernie. So he was working for both. So he had two clipboards that he was walking around and <laughs> taking people's names. If Tom Steyer is not a billionaire, he's not getting a clipboard out of that guy, you know? So there's that sort of stuff that money can give you that if you're Maybe not Tom Steyer should be spending his money more on people who are uh, working for him in a, in a, in a more honest and, and, and my, better my way. My guess is that that was not part of the guy's pitch when he did the uh, job interview. <laughs> That's amazing. But you hit on an interesting point. So I think a lot of people think of financial reporters as sitting behind a computer, combing through spreadsheets, and you do that a good deal. But you've had some interesting, you and your colleagues on your desk have had some interesting on-the-ground experiences covering the current candidates and, and Trump when he just was elected. Yeah, well, you know, there's a point at which uh, you run out of documents or, <laughs> you know, the documents don't tell you the full story and you got to go figure it out. So like one of the things that we were taking a close look at is although Trump hasn't spent any of his own money on his campaign, he has been charging his campaign money uh, for various things like rent and legal expenses and all that sort of stuff. So one of the things that he was charging him for was this property called Trump Plaza LLC, which owns like a, you know, six retail stores and a parking garage and two brownstone buildings over on Third Avenue and 61st Street. And but we couldn't figure out what it was actually renting, that the campaign didn't have any presence in any of the stores. I walked down into the garage and talked to the garage tenants and they're like, what, what are you talking about? No, the campaign's not here. It's leased by another company. And so the only thing were these two brownstone buildings that this entity owned, Trump Plaza LLC, that it could be paying rent to. And so I went over to the Brownstones at like, it was like 6.30 one morning. This is like in December in 2018. It was freezing. And, uh, and I just stood outside there for 14 hours. I took a, a, uh, like an 18-minute break to go uh, get a hot chocolate at one point. But other than that, I was out there the whole time and the idea was that I didn't know what time people's hours were for work and that right. sort of stuff. And they're fairly small buildings. So I wanted to catch everyone who lived in them. So I suppose somebody could have stayed inside all day, but most people leave. Realize that's illegal and called loitering, right? Well, whatever. Well, there's so, a church on that block. Were you like pretending to be outside of that church? I wasn't pretending to be anything. <laughs> I was just standing right in front of the brownstones. <laughs> and when the people would walk out, then I would go up to them and I'd say, hi, you know, I'm a reporter. I'm trying to figure out. Uh, what's going on here? And I would show them the documents. I'd say, I'm trying to see, you know, where is this money going? And uh, people were like, I don't know. You know, I haven't seen anybody from the campaign. And uh, 
So by the end of the day, nobody had said that they knew what was going on. No one had seen any campaign presence in the building. So I walked inside to like a sort of a sister building um, and talked to the guy who was working at the front desk there. And he was like, no, he's like, there's no campaign here. If there was a campaign here, I would know about it. And so it's still a mystery what exactly the Trump, you know, why they're taking the supporter money and putting it into this company that is Trump's company. We don't know why they're paying it. I, I did talk to a guy who worked on the 2016 campaign who said that sometimes if like campaign staffers were tired and it was late at night, then they would go over to an apartment there and crash in that apartment. But none of the, none of the neighbors in the building had seen that. And nobody in the campaign wouldn't say that to me when I asked them. So that could be an explanation, but it's just really hard to know. Fascinating. Should we move on to talk about talk about the billionaires? Should we now move on to talk about the, the million. mere millionaires? Yes, please. All right, Dan, tell us about the Bidens, the Mayor Pete's, the Bernies, and their relationship with the money and how they spend their money. So they're all pretty rich. Um, you know, for uh, for a normal person's standard, you know, most people in the country would love to be in their financial position. Every single one of them, except for Pete Buttigieg, is at least a millionaire. Um, some of them are surprisingly wealthy. Uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren's worth $12 million. I, I don't, I didn't expect that when we first started looking into her, you know, she doesn't talk about, uh, her business career or mm -hmm. anything like that. There are a lot of quote unquote business people who are worth a lot less than that. Um, Joe Biden's fairly wealthy, you know, he's worth $9 million. It did not come from Ukraine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can say that definitively. <laughs> yeah, I can say that definitively. It came from his books. Uh, so in the gap between when he left the Obama White House and when he decided to make a run for his own White House, uh, you know, he and his wife both wrote books and those were big deals. So they made all their money that way. Bernie Sanders uh, used to criticize all the millionaires and billionaires and now he just criticizes the billionaires because he's a millionaire. Uh. But uh, but anyway, so uh, he's worth two and a half million dollars. Same sort of thing as Biden. You know, he wrote books in between the presidential campaigns and he made a good chunk of change doing that. You know, Pete Buttigieg, who uh, he's sort of, you know, is branded as this kind of business guy, you know, worked at McKinsey, all this sort of stuff. You know, he's got about a hundred thousand bucks, which is, you know, it's nice. He'll be comfortable, but, um, George, you live in the South Bend. Yeah. Living in South Bend. He's got a nice house there. Uh, that's, you know, a high percentage of his net worth is wrapped up in the equity of that house. Um, but you know, it's not, he can't retire tomorrow and be just fine. Uh, and yeah, that's he because he left McKinsey pretty early and started uh, making runs for public office, some of which were uh, successful and some which weren't. There was one year where I think his total income was like $7,000 or something like that. What wow. do you live on? Do you have any idea? I think he must have had a little bit of savings from his McKinsey days, um, but not much, you know? Well, he is married, so yeah. spousal. But he, they've known each other for like a year, a year and a half. And I, I believe, was... uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think Chasson's the teacher. So, you know, it's not like he's making big bank and he's got a bunch of student loans that he still hasn't paid off. So I want to go back to Elizabeth Warren and her personal fortune. Can you tell us a little more about her? So Elizabeth Warren, you know, she has been a professor for, you know, most of Speaking her- Speaking teachers, yes. Yeah, for most of her life. But she also does, you know, some side uh, legal assignments, which have paid well. Uh, but really, you know, she's just invested her money well. Um, she has a lot of money in these TIA CREF accounts, which are available to people who are educators. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and they guarantee a return for you, not like a massive return, but a consistent one. It's a, an annuity yeah, type product, Yeah, right? exactly. Yes. And, you know, and she's done really well with those. But the best investment that she made was she bought a really beautiful house uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right by Harvard. And the value of real estate in Cambridge, Massachusetts has exploded over the last, even just five years. And uh, so I think that the house now is worth $5 million. I want to get back to Mayor Pete and also Bernie, because the two of them seem to be sparring over over money and how each of them portrays their personal wealth. Hmm. I think one of them actually tweeted one of your stories to prove hmm. that I think it might have been more on the billionaire donor side, but still they're they're starting to go after each other and how they talk about money and how they're using money. Can you talk more about that? So there was at one point in a debate where Bernie Sanders starts going after Mayor Pete for the number of billionaire donors that he has. At the time, I think that Pete was at 40. Now he's up to 56. Uh, it's right behind Joe Biden, who's at 60. We'll see how those numbers change when the latest filings come out or the next round of filings come out. But so he goes after him for all of his billionaire donors and Mayor Pete turns around and uh, and says, well, according to Forbes magazine, I'm the only person up here who's not a millionaire or billionaire, which is true. And so they were both taking our reporting, one on how many billionaire donors one of them has and the other one on how rich he is versus everyone else and weaponizing that information to fight each other, which uh, I guess since they were both accurate, then that's fine by us. <laughs> it's the only time someone brags about we we always get so many people who want to be higher on a list right. or, or want to be a billionaire. And Pete's on stage bragging about being uh, being poor. <laughs> but I, in a way, it could help him because of the way we've seen wealth inequality in this country grow and the way wealth has been demonized in some parts of the country and with some voters. So Pete could very well be successful with bragging about your story. Well, and it's, you know, it's been demonized uh, perhaps by no one else more than Bernie Sanders. You know, if you were to watch those two guys on a stage and, you know, you were to say, OK, who's the richer guy here, Bernie Sanders or Pete Buttigieg? Everyone would say Pete Buttigieg based <laughs> on the way that they talk about things. Bernie Sanders is 25 times richer than Pete Buttigieg. So uh, it's just sort of a personal branding thing, I guess. I do want to briefly talk about Amy Klobuchar because she's someone who plays up her Midwestern roots on the campaign trail. She's trying to capture basically the the middle America vote, quote mm -hmm. unquote, if you will. How do you look at her wealth? What should we know about how much money she has? Well, she definitely did grow up, you know, very middle class. Her dad was a newspaper man. And, uh, you know, she went to college and her dad said something to her like, you know, make sure you save your pennies and nickels when you're there or something like that. And, <laughs> and it seems like she really has. Uh, you know, she has never done, you know, a big business deal or anything like that. Uh, but, you know, she's served in the Senate now for a handful of years and she made a decent salary before that and she's socked it away. And you do that over enough years and you get a $2 million fortune. So it's all in very benign assets. Uh, you know, it's a plain vanilla, you know, I mean, stocks and bonds, mutual funds sort of portfolio. There's nothing too risky about it. $2 million buys out of old Milwaukee. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, that's right. As long as we don't forget about Wisconsin this election. You sound bored by her portfolio. I guess Amy Klobuchar's portfolio is not the best uh, hunting ground for an, an investigative reporter. It's not the best hunting ground for an investigative reporter, which which might be a good thing for a candidate. All right. Today is Super Tuesday. So for anyone listening on the day that this episode comes out, what should those people watch for today in terms of the candidates and their money? It, it's a broad question, of course, but everyone's pontificating. So why don't you join on in? Yeah, well, come on, Dan. Pontificate away. <laughs> I, I don't generally like to pontificate, but, uh, you know, the big question that we're going to answer today 
is whether all of Michael Bloomberg's spending seems to have been worth it. Uh, you know, he took an unusual strategy by sort of letting these early states go. And there have been some strictly politicians who have done that before. You know, Rudy Giuliani took that strategy, didn't work for him. Uh, and so we're going to see if it works for a guy who's got a bigger bank account than Rudy Giuliani. And, uh, you know, the results, if he does fare well, the other big question is, are we going to have a broker convention? And, mm. you know, the the odds of us knowing that after today are uh going to be pretty high. What is a brokered convention? A brokered convention is basically when you go into the convention and it's not clear who the person is. So, you know, in 2016, going into the Democratic National Convention, everybody knew that Hillary Clinton was going to be the right, nominee. Right. Same thing with the Republican one, even though it was a huge field, just like the Democrats have been this time, it was clear that Trump was the guy. Right. If that's not clear, then basically they hash it out right there in the convention hall. And uh, so for political nerds, that'll be a very exciting time. It's like bidding for Monopoly game pieces. <laughs> That's right. Except with our nation's future. Yay! <laughs> I'll give you 200 for St. James. <laughs> I'm really curious and also not placing any bets. It's uncharacteristic for me, but I have no crystal ball on what's going to happen today. Well, I think that uh, the 2016 election uh, gave a lot of people a much needed dose of humility in pontificating about politics. Well, you know what, guys? I do know what's next. It's time for segments. <laughs> I think so, too. All right, Dan. We're going to do a segment called Triplicate. It's a game of would you rather. Would you rather be president, the president's speechwriter, or the political pundit on television talking about the president? Well, this might surprise some people, but I, I would not like anything to do with political punditry. I, I like, <laughs> I like reporting. I don't necessarily love opining about other people's reporting. Um, uh, so I guess I would choose to be a speechwriter for the president, and I would keep a recorder on the entire time, and uh, then I could report about all the crazy stuff I saw. <laughs> Working on your book simultaneously. Yeah, I, like know, why, why I like that. I like that. Abe. Uh, Dan, if you run for president, I'll come on as your speechwriter. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not taking me up on that? No, I'm, I'm not taking you up on running for president, nor are you being my speechwriter if I did. <laughs> you don't, I, I can put words in your mouth. You want to watch me? I've been trying to do it for eight years. You won't let me. Is that your answer, speechwriter? For Dan. For Dan. But in general, would you rather be a pundit? You, you know, it's really hard for me to decide whether I, you know what, actually, I love hearing the sound of my own voice. Dear listeners, you've been listening to it for a long time now. So I'll just go president. I was thinking political punditry, but, you know, <laughs> I will have even greater access to microphones as president. Oh. This is this goes back to my genie Jafar wish as well. Yes, it does. I think if Abe is president, then I want to be a pundit. But otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, I agree with Dan. I'd prefer to be a speechwriter. And actually, one of the best movies that I've watched recently on an airplane, I guess, is the caveat. Have you seen Longshot, the movie with Charlize Theron? And... Uh, yeah, that was supposed to be terrible. No, it was great. It was a delightful rom-com. How do I know it's a terrible movie? Maggie likes it. Yes. <laughs> I like delightful rom-coms. Um, but it's... Uh, Josh Rogan plays Charlize Theron's um, speechwriter, and she's not president. She's running for president, and they fall in love. And I don't know. I don't know that I'm looking for love on the campaign trail. It seems like a really <laughs> bad place to fall in love. But I do feel like I could use my journalistic skills to punch up some political speeches. Well, you know what, Dan? 
I'll be your Seth Rogen. You can be my Shirley's Throne. We'll have a great campaign. We'll win an election. Thank you so much for coming in today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Are you ready, Mags? It's time for last but not least. Are you going to do that on the campaign trail? Uh, my voice is going a little bit, but no, I might have to be a little more forceful. So maybe I'll do it's last but not least. Oh, boy. Maggie, what list do you have for me? So we were talking a lot about political ads today, and that made me want to go down the rabbit hole and see what are the most influential ads, political ads of all time. There have been some really famous ones. So in 2016, our friends over at Adweek did the 10 iconic presidential campaign ads that changed political advertising. I'm not going to go through the whole list, but I did want to point out that a couple stand out to me. In 1964, there was the famous Daisy ad. President Lyndon Johnson was running for re-election against— this is the Goldwater one. Yes, indeed, against Barry Goldwater. I don't want to give it away because we actually have a clip here, but it starts with a young girl picking the petals off a daisy, and a countdown is heard. What you can't see, but we can all hear, is the uh, very distinctive uh, mushroom cloud of an atomic bomb, which really scared everybody living through that living through that era. And then Johnson won that election. This list continues to go on. It talks about the um, famous windsurfing ad that George W. Bush had against John Kerry, that he would go with any direction the wind blows. See, I think of this, the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth in, the, in that election. I think that is also on this list, as is uh, the Hillary Clinton's 3 a.m., who's answering the phone at 3 a.m. My personal favorite, the one that I think is the most interesting to talk about, is an ad spot from 2008 in support of Barack Obama, and it was a Yes, We Can video in a way. It was not a TV spot. It was a four and a half minute YouTube clip uh, of a speech that was actually set to song. Um in this video, figures like Will I Am and Scarlett Johansson and other pop culture figures and pop singers sing the words of a speech that Obama gave in New Hampshire that year. Um, it really, I think, foretells a lot of the changes that we would eventually see and see today in political advertising, the way you take celebrities and involve them in a campaign like this, the way music and YouTube have become so instrumental in a campaign. Um, so it was both ahead of its time and also poignant in a number of ways. We will remember that there's something happening in America. That we are not as divided as our politics suggest. That we are one people. That we are one nation. And together, we will begin the next great chapter in the American story with three words that will ring from coast to coast. From sea to shining sea. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. It's powerful. It's interesting. And then, of course, we've seen these tactics repeated in 2012, 2016, and 2020, using famous figures to be an advocate for you, creating memes, creating skits, and creating songs. I don't remember seeing that at all. I think the one thing I want to give a shout out to right now is a TikTok account called Heyberg. Are you on TikTok? Have you seen this? Am I on TikTok? Answer. Don't ask questions. Okay, so you're not on TikTok, but this account, Heyberg, he's a comedian and he does 
he is doing he's he's impersonating both Obama and Trump as if they're on a buddy road trip together. It is he does both impeccably. It is fantastic. That that's my recommendation via all the political media stuff we've talked about. It's fantastic. Well, I'm not on TikTok. I have no plans to join TikTok anytime soon. But Abe, I think your plans are a little bit different than mine. They definitely are. I think we're having a bit of an inside conversation right now. Uh, it's been a great 16 episodes co-hosting listed with Abe. It feels longer than that. It feels like 36, 106. You know, I'm not going to respond to that because I've been told that time flies when people are with me because I'm such a good time. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, this is Abe's last episode as the listed co-host. That's true. I'm sad to say I'm leaving the pod. I know I'm leaving it in very capable hands. I am going... Uh, off into the wilderness. I'm I'm rejoining our reporting ranks and I will be covering social media. So this is the Facebooks, the Instagrams and the TikToks and and all the other new new ways we will digitally communicate in the future. And yeah, I'll be working on the stories that we love to hear on this pod and I'll be back to tell them to you. I look forward to your list of the top earning TikTokers. Yeah, t- TikTokers, TikTok stars, uh, they're real. They're out there. And you know what? If if this new role at Forbes doesn't work, as I think we've already learned in this episode, I've got a presidential run in me. Pie for breakfast. Pie for breakfast. Abe's just going to march through the halls of Forbes <laughs> yelling that until someone tells him to shut up because I can't tell him what to do anymore. But for the rest of you, Listed is taking a few weeks off. We need to recover from this political conversation. I, Maggie McGrath, will be back in your feed soon with more of the listology you love, the segments you love, the interviews you love. So stay tuned. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much to the man staking out Donald Trump's house right now. It's Dan Alexander. Next time he's staking out a property in my neighborhood, I promise I'll be the one to deliver hot chocolate. Uh, Links to everything we've talked about on our show are in the show notes. And please vote us into the top of the podcast rankings on CastBox, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you keep those ratings and reviews coming, we will be the number one candidate. I'm your co-host, Abe Brown. I'm a senior editor at Forbes. I'm the other co-host, Maggie McGrath, editor of Forbes Women. Listed is a spoke media production. Karen Meadows records with us in studio, and our producer is Reva Goldberg. Our theme song is composed and performed by Will Short. Our production team is Caroline Hamilton, John Villalobos, and Will Short at Spoke Media. And thanks very much to our cabinet of advisors here at Forbes, Travis Collins, Kyle Kramer, Randall Lane, and Dario Fruton. Bye! Hello, New Jersey. Did you just turn my mic down? <laughs> what the fuck? Put me back up. <laughs>